Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Now, it's a real honour to have my famous guest join me on the programme today, acclaimed British actor John Rhys-Davis. Well, probably best known to film audiences for his roles in the blockbuster hits Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, King Solomon's Mines, and of course The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King and The Fellowship of the Ring. Television credits include Shogun, Great Expectations, War and Remembrance, etc., etc., plus a host of theatre roles to his credit, and just about most of Shakespeare's works. Well, at long last, it's a real pleasure, as I say, to invite John Rhys-Davis to the programme. Welcome to Manx Radio and, of course, to the programme, John. You've been very kind, Geraldine, very kind. (laughs) Now, I gather that you were raised in England, Africa and Wales, of course, graduated from the University of East Anglia and went on to refine your craft at London's renowned Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Were you always determined to become a classic actor from your early roots? Well, my my background is that sort of uncertain background that many colonial children had. I was actually, I was born in Salisbury during an air raid. Both my parents were Welsh, and I have it on good authority that I was actually conceived in Wales. But um, he went out to Africa after the war. I went out with him uh, eventually with my mother, and uh, then I got exported to England to be educated, and I would spend my short holidays in Wales, you know, two up, two down, tin bath in front of the fire on Fridays. You came back, I think, to the UK, did you, when you were about nine? That's right, yes. And um, Welsh chapel three times on Sunday absolutely in a language of course that I couldn't really speak or understand and um, an outside uh, you know a, a mean little public school down in Cornwall um, Truro, which actually, Truro um, which actually gave me a very good education in retrospect and um, and a colonial house with four acres and five servants uh, out in Africa so it was completely schizophrenic and when you're brought up in those outside, when you're never part of a community, you're always an outsider wherever you are, really. Looking in. Yes, that's very good grounding for becoming an actor um, because what, you, what a child does is seeks to pass and seeks to, to find a way to, and can never actually quite be part of that community that he's living in. My father used to claim that, that any talent I had for acting came from him on the grounds that he had taken part in the first radio broadcast of Under Milk Wood in Tanganyika. This qualification, I suspect, was perhaps a little bit overstated in, in retrospect, but, but um, I was very proud of it. Do you think Tanganyika knew of Under Milk Wood at all? They did in 1952 or something like that. The Welsh Society put it on. So how did you get on then at the University of East Anglia? I, fa- I was a founder student, you see. There were... There were the truth of the matter is I'd failed to get into Oxford. Um, well, I had a conditional place at Oxford, if, providing I stayed on and got Latin at O-level. Davis, there isn't a snowball's chance in hell that you are going to get O-level Latin. You're idle, idle. So um, I didn't do that, and I, I failed to get into Cambridge. I went up for my interview and got very drunk the night before and disgraced myself, really. And she... She was going to Cambridge at Homerton, so I figured I've got to get somewhere close to her 
and East Anglia was just opening up, and I was one of 60, 60 schoolboys. We had 60, under, 60 undergraduates and seven postgraduates. So I founded the Dramatic Society and did some work at the Matter Market and did a lot of acting and a lot of other things and even emerged with some sort of a degree. We won't go into that. <laughs> but you were on the road, were you, to theatre by then? The real reason why I became an actor was when I was 11, I saw a school play. The first play I'd ever seen was, uh, and it was Oedipus Rex. And when you're an adolescent and you see Oedipus Rex, it hits you like a hammer. And I uh, remember leaving the theater and going straight to the school library and finding Aristotle on tragedy. And I learned that night, and I remember it still. Tragedy, then, is the imitation of an action, complete and of some importance, acted, not narrated, in language enhanced by distinct and varying means, and through pity and fear, effecting its purgation of these emotions. Iconic stuff here. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so I was always intending to, uh, to be a writer, actually. I was going to be your new Sophocles. Um, but somehow Rada got in between. Well, I was, I thought I could earn my keep as an actor. <laughs> what an extraordinary vanity. <laughs> Sometimes ignorance is your best armor, isn't it, really? I mean, I applied to go into Rado because I didn't know the name of any other drama schools. I hadn't heard of Guildhall or Lambda or anything like that. I had heard of Rado, and I thought, well, of course I'm going to get in there. And of course I did get in there. It was actually harder to get into Rado than it was to get into Balliol Oxford, I believe. Extraordinary. So what come first then, really, in, in, in the career, when you were let loose then, shall we say, up from these colleges onto the theatrical treading the boards, was it literally, you know, stage before screen and television miniseries, etc.? Very much so. Um, bundle of absolute, of confirmed prejudices that one has when one's a young man meant, of course, that, you know, the stage was the only serious thing, and, and nothing else really counted. Uh, I left Rada on Sunday night and started work at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry on Monday morning. In those days, we had rep, and repertory was really the best grounding for anybody. It's a great loss. Oh, tremendous. Just to have to find an, uh, a number of different characters each week, or each two weeks, to make your mistakes. I, I won't mention his name. He became a hugely successful young actor. We'd been working together on quite a well-known picture. And I said, look, whatever you do, don't go straight on to another leading part. Go back. You're only 20. Go back to, to rep. You know, tr try and do weekly rep. If you can find anywhere that does weekly rep, you know, do 12 characters in 12 weeks. Make your mistakes in front of an audience of 300, not on, in front of an audience of 50 million. And he did exactly what I would have done. He smiled at me with that confidence of youth and said, John, I don't intend to make any mistakes. <laughs> He's finished now. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, moving you on, is one of four Lord of the Rings stars, just star, pre-rings, you were with, with Harrison Ford. And that was with the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Good movie, wasn't it? Fantastic movie. And what a man. Yes, he was a very purposeful, very driven uh, young B-list actor who was intending to be an A-list actor. 
uh, and he realized that, that Indiana Jones was his big chance of doing it. I found him a bit abrasive to begin with, but uh, by the time we did the third one, because I wasn't in the second one, and you know that I'm not in the last one, I, I thought that he'd mellowed and matured both as a person and certainly as an actor. And it was really quite delightful working with him. It was actually not too bad the first time round, but um, I would say that it, it was it, it, it probably the only time in my life that I've actually worked with with someone who was just at that point of making of making that metamorphosis between B list and A list. And, and uh, Karen Allen, you see, Karen. The terrible thing about actresses is they may be goddesses, but they are not they're not really women. They can be goddesses, they can be monsters, but they're not really human beings, <laughs> with a few exceptions. And Karen was, was one of those wonderful exceptions. And there was, a, there was always a great sanity and a, a down-to-earth quality about her, which is probably why she was A-list for about 10 seconds, maybe a bit longer. There was just a richness in her life that was quite independent of the of the artificial world of Hollywood and movies. Now, there's something I've learned about yourself that I'm sure, like me, our public today were quite unaware of, and it's extraordinary, really, and how you coped with it, John. You spent up to five hours a day putting on makeup for the role, of course, of Gimli in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it was discovered early on that you were allergic to prosthetics. Well, I didn't start off allergic to it, um, and in theory... It isn't an allergy as such. In order to put the, the makeup or the, the, the prosthetic onto my face, they had to use medical adhesive. A medical adhesive is, is wonderful and, and very, very strong and very effective. And it doesn't really react with the skin. The only snag is that to get it off, it's not designed to be taken off once a day. It's designed to be left on till it sort of wears off. And it just ended up removing all the skin around my eyes. I mean, all the skin. So you're getting a huge histamine sort of rush as well. You know, your face is, is, is swollen. And it's just that wet lobster red meat, like a panda, all, all around your eyes. And, of course, increasingly and increasing and growing as well. And, and I would go to um, wonderful skin specialists uh, in, um, in New Zealand, and they would look at me and say, ah, I can cure you. Just stop what you're doing, which isn't really very practical when you're doing <laughs> something like that. Uh, but, I mean, you know, the, the, the rule was, well, you can't work more than once every 12 days, 14 days. It's got to heal up. That's not going to happen as well. So you would go in some days and they would simply say, you can't work. There is nothing we can glue the prosthetic to. Go away. And you'd come back three days later and it had crusted over by then. And you'd say, all right, let's have a go at it. And, you know, they would put it on. And as they were putting the glue on and putting the prosthetic on, you'd feel it beginning to dissolve. And then you've no idea how itching it is. I mean, it just drove me mad. Not a happy experience. But you kept at it. Now, there was another experience with tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> and you somewhat cheated there, didn't you, a little no, bit? No, I didn't. I don't cheat. I, you know, I met a young girl the other day. She was 16. She was a beautiful young child. And she, was, she had more piercings on her face 
and more tattoos on her arms and things like that. And I, I looked at her and I said, what did your daddy say when he saw that? And she thought I was, you know, she, well, he wasn't very pleased. And I said, please, let me tell you what you did. You broke his heart. He made a beautiful little girl. And this is what you've done to her. You're not meant to say that to fans and things like that. But, I mean, it's, it's a, lev- a level of self-loathing, I think, and disfigurement. I mean, I've never met anyone who was improved by piercings or tattoos. Now, it's a different thing if it's in New Zealand. It's a cultural thing. I mean, when a woman has... A tribal has, experience. Yes. When a woman has a tattoo, you know, straight down on her chin, it means that she has inherited a, a tribal position that she can pass on to her offspring. It is, it is a mark of status in society. But, you know, but we don't have anything like that, and it's... It grieves me. So, I'm sorry, to get back to, I suppose, Lord of the Rings, yes. Those... <laughs> bloody little hobbits got drunk in Queenstown and came to me next day and said, we have decided that we are going to commemorate this film by having a tattoo. Everyone, all the, the 11 members of the, uh, the fellowship are going to have a tattoo, or the elvish word for 11. And I, you know, I said to them, if you think I'm going to have some drunken Maori pierce my skin with a dirty needle... You are insane. <laughs> oh, it's got to be. It's got to be, John. We've got to be all 11 of us got to have it. So I sent my stunt double, and he has it. Um, I had three little stunt doubles, and I sent one of them because he, he thought that uh, he ought to have it. So that's fine. Well, now, just a little reminder that you are listening to the Geraldine Jameson interview on Manx Radio. And my delightful, very distinguished guest today is stage, screen, and television actor John Rhys Davis. Now, there must have been many a time, really, where you've had to sort of divide your time because you, you've really, you've lived and worked in, in New Zealand, of course, and for a while, Los Angeles, and then the little old Isle of Man in the middle. How did you find our island? When you move to America, getting out of the English tax system is one of the, one of the hard things that you have to do. And then there are certain rules about, you know, not being resident for... 18 months or 12 months or something like that. And then uh, it's quite complicated. Anyway, I'd, I'd managed to get my brain around that, and I'd moved to Los Angeles. I then did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I was doing uh, something for Disney, um, Great Expectations. And uh, I was running out of days I could spend in England. And so my producer friend, who had a, he had a place in the Azores, so I went over there and spent a week there, and then I took off and spent a week in Paris. Between shots, I was leaving the country. And he said, why don't you try the Isle of Man? And I really did have this image of the Isle of Man as being rock hall, you know, just a rock sticking out. I didn't even know that it was inhabited. I may may have known it was inhabited. So he had a deal with the palace. And uh, anyway, I think it was about 10 quid. I knew why it was 10 quid, because the palace was having major extensive renovations done to it, and there was a pneumatic drill going probably from 7 o'clock in the morning to 5 at night. Hired a car, drove around the south end of the island. Yeah, it's okay. Um, But what I really want to do is write. Uh, So I parked the car and locked myself into the palace and wrote. My father died about 18 months before, and I was really trying to write my goodbye to him. And I had a few issues in my life that I 
you know, that I was trying to use as a fictional thing. And I wrote for five days, and, and then I got up on the morning of the sixth day, and I read it all, and it was complete rubbish. Absolute, complete garbage. So I tore it all up and threw it in the bin. I went down and got the car again. I thought, well, I can't write this. I can't write, probably. I mean, well, where else is there to see on this island? And I drove up north, and uh, I drove up Jerby Way. I saw this little white house set in green fields on the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea. I thought, God, I've always wanted a place by the sea. And it had sail agreed. And I, I drove around a couple of times, and it was really very pleasant. It was one of those lovely summer days. And I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll go up there. If there's somebody there, I'll just simply say, well, I, I was just wanting to, just curious about the place. And if there's no one there, I'll just be nosy and, you know, go down and look at the beach and things like that. And I got there, and I found it extraordinary because I, it was quite an old house. I realized that bits of it were probably 17th century, maybe 16th century. And people didn't build that close to the sea in the 16th century. Do you realize that between 1500 and 1800, probably two million Europeans were sold as slaves on the slave markets, in the slave markets of Morocco? There were raiders from the sea, and they came and they took you, and that was the end of your life. So it was a pretty hairy business in those days. So I went down to the beach and had a look, and it dawned on me that the whole north end of the island is really a sand dune on top of glacial clay. If you have a cliff made of sand and you get a normal high tide, washes the base of the cliff away, everything slumps down, the, the storm carries all that away, and then and, and it just keeps going. And I, I climbed up the cliff, feeling very pleased with myself, having done this detective work, and thought, well, that's it then. You know, this house wasn't actually here uh, when it was built. It was probably a mile away from the sea. And in a year or two's time, it'll be in the sea unless somebody stops the sea. And I suddenly realized what my story was about. It was about a man who abandons his life and his love and his partner and his friends and buys an old house on a cliff overlooking the sea. And the sea is attacking the cliff and the house is doomed. And he determines he will stop the sea. And it's a wonderful image for time. You know, all our cliffs are being eroded by time. And against this, the pattern of his, yeah, his life is, is played out, you know. Um, I suppose one of the things I wanted to say is that, you know, uh, the impossible dilemma for men and women is that women are really, apart from certain periods in their younger life, are, are really predicated on intimacy and security, and men are predicated on curiosity and adventure. Mm -hmm. um, you do like your anonymity, too, don't you? The fact that you can get into a pair of dungarees and go down and tinker about I do like that. with a van or something uh, just uh, uh, toy. Actors are such ambivalent people, aren't they, really? I mean, uh, the notion that that um, that no one would ever recognize you again, of course, would be horrifying to any actor. But we, we like those moments of privacy. And, and, we, and most actors get them by putting on dark glasses, which, of course, means that nobody notices you, that, that you're the only person in the room wearing dark glasses when you walk into the restaurant. It's the most extraordinary piece of psychological flummoxery that, I've, that I can ever imagine. My disguise is I put on a shabby old pair of jeans and, 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 and a dungarees and wander around that way. And 
with a bit of luck, people don't look at you. Of course they do sometimes, and then you just get known as just the local slob. But, um, but you know, we, we, we all need... I think it was Hethcott Pearson once said that, that fame is a perversion of the human need for validity and attention. Do you have political views? I have political views, yes. Have you ever been a member of a political party? No. I worked for the Communist Party when I was a stroppy student. I helped get the Labour elected in Norwich South. Uh, I went along to to heckle Maggie Thatcher once because she was my MP in Parliament. And um, I went with a bunch of other people and we were going to show this woman. I watched her shoot down a couple of my mates in absolute flames. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm just going to shut up and listen for once. A remarkable woman and and a, a very great prime minister. It took me a long time to realize that my political judgments were wrong and for the wrong reasons. Ronnie Reagan, I met Ronnie Reagan very briefly in California and dismissed him because I, I took at face value everything that was said about him. I mistook a an amiable man for a fool. You know, Ronnie was one of the smartest operators ever, and a great president. And Gorbachev says in his memoirs that uh, they were tw- spending 27% of their GNP in Russia on arms. And when Reagan announced the Star Wars program, he thought, that's it. We can't afford to stay in this race any longer. We will never be able to develop this country. We are falling further and further behind economically. There has got to be another way. I have got to find another way. And perestroika, I mean, like Margaret Thatcher in the Falklands. I was in New York when the Falklands were invaded. And the contempt and the jeering that I was getting from amiable contempt, you know, I see the old British lion really is toothless now. You know, I mean, that was, you know, pathetic. You know, the British and the British Empire, they used to have it, but they haven't got it anymore. And the moment she announced that she was going to reinvade the Falklands, I, 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 I could barely buy myself a drink. It was other people who were buying me drinks all the time. And at the time, and I'm sure that you remember it well, there was a feeling that if if the Falklands had been allowed to be taken over by the by the Argentines, there really was not much point in us. The government would have fallen. Uh, Michael Foote would have been prime minister. We would have probably gone unilateralist and we'd have probably pulled out of NATO. There might have been a different outcome to the Cold War in Europe. And those two remarkable people between them, both of whom (laughs) at various times I'd sort of despised, not despised, despised, really end up being, you know, the major and important players of, in world history in the 20th century. Do you remember where you were when the Twin Towers went down? I was here on the island, I think. How did that affect you? The inhumanity of it. I, I, for some time, I, I had on my fridge in America a blurred image. You looked at it and you thought, what is that blur? It's actually a photograph of somebody having to jump from the top because the burning is, the building is so hot. And, and when, I, when I contrast civilizations, 
Do you not remember the, the, the dancing and singing on the streets of every Muslim capital of the world? You know, they'd get, you know they were dancing, cheeking, you know. And I contrast that with America. About two years after that, there was an earthquake in Iran. And after an enormous number of days, they managed to pull this 82-year-old lady out when she was still alive. And all the media uh, in America was focused on the miracle of life. That this, this, this and, you know, everyone was pleased. And you ask about political opinions. I think that is the, the terrifying contrast between Islam and the West. I mean, there's a very substantial portion of, of, of Islam that believes that confrontation with the West is inevitable and welcome. You know, that, that, that really God commands that the great Satan be confronted and defeated finally and overthrown. And, and if you're a Shiite or a Twelver, you know, the Armageddon will come the prophets will return, including Jesus, for a while, and then, indeed, the uh, the twelfth, the hidden Iman, will re will return, and all will be brought within the Ummah. Well, the finally, John, because unfortunately, the clock is going to beat us. I'd like to take you back to, of course, the theatre. Is there a role that you would have loved to? have played, and for some reason or not, it just didn't come your way. I mean, really, you've been blessed with this wonderful, rare speaking voice, which just mesmerizes any audience. Such a bonus, undoubtedly. Well, he, he gives everybody something, you know. He, he, he made up for my simple-mindedness by giving me an authoritative voice sometimes. But, um, yes, I would like to have played Henry V, Henry IV, rather. Then what actors believe they can play and what they are allowed to play are very different things. Can I bore you with one last anecdote? The tragedy for actors is that they are not grounded. They do not see themselves as other people see them. The most villainous-looking man fondly imagines that he is, in fact, a young DiCaprio in the making. An old man confidently believes that you know he should be playing some 22-year-old part and things like that. It's partly, partly the male thing. All males, really, in their mind's eye, are 18. And that continues right through their lives, really. So actors are, are seldom grounded. But there are one or two wonderful exceptions. Of course, I'm one of them, because I am grounded. I really understand these things. and I know my limitations. So when my agent called me up and said... Um, Hey, Johnny, Johnny, uh, West Coast reps on the phone, uh, they want you to play Hamlet. I said, oh, come on, Russ, they don't want me to play Hamlet, for goodness sake. They may want me to play somebody in it, but they don't want me to play Hamlet. No, no, no Johnny, I'm, I'm being serious now. They want you to play Hamlet, you know, uh, are you interested or not? I said, Russ, I am 55. I weigh nearly 18 stone. They don't want me to play Hamlet. They probably want me to play Claudius, which I've played, or they might want me to play the ghost or, or, or something like that, but they don't want me to play Hamlet. Look, Johnny, there's no money in it. You, you know, you don't have to do it. I can tell them to go away. But I just thought I'd ask you, do you want to play Hamlet? Are you serious? <laughs> I, I, I've always wanted to play Hamlet. Hey, yes, uh, 
Oh, I'd love to. Okay, I'll tell him you want to play Hamlet then. Oh, uh, one last thing. You, you, you're still on for dinner tonight? Yes, I'll, I'll be down there. Uh, 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 Santa Monica, your place, uh, 7.30 tonight. 7.30, I am down there. I have reread Hamlet. Listen, Russ, I, I, I've thought about this. I mean, Irving played it when he was 53, and I'm going to lose 40 pounds at least. I, I'm really going to work on this. I, I've already relearned the first act. I, 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 I see a way through this that, you know, the maturity can actually give me a, a, a new angle into this. Oh, I, I, I got the wrong play. It was Macbeth. <laughs> well, it's been remarkable and so very entertaining to have you on the program. Thank you indeed, John Rhys-Davis, for taking the time to join me on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. You've been a wonderful host. Thank you for having me. <laughs>